But for many of us, myself included, we had to watch our moms just lose themselves. On the count of three, one, two. Hi, I'm Ramnik Chohal. And I'm Carol Eugene Park. This is Decomplicated. Hello, hello, hello. Howdy, partner. Yeehaw, how you doing? I don't know, I was just feeling kind of uh, wild, wild west today, so I mm. thought I'd say howdy. Cool, I like it. I'm digging it. We love we love the wild west. Romnik, I have a weird question for you to begin our beautiful morning. Hit me. I don't know if you're ready. No, uh, I never I don't am. care if you're offended. I never, I'm just I always it. am. When are you planning on having children? Oh, um, that's that's a question. That's a choice. And it's funny that you asked this because I feel like my mother may have contacted you in order to ask this line of questioning because literally last week, my mom asked me, when are you thinking of getting married? And I'm like, I am a child, first of all. That is the first and foremost thing. Babies do not have babies, all right? And I know I'm a grown adult woman, <laughs> but I still believe that I am a child. So to answer your question, Carol, that is not even a consideration in my brain. I don't even know if I want children. If my mom hears this, she will not be pleased. But what about you, Carol? When are you having children, more importantly? I am never having children. I have no plans on having children. I have no desire, no maternal bone in my body that's like, please, I would love to be impregnated by a man. Like, none of that exists anywhere in my DNA. I am... One of the many millennials, um, the lost generation, as as some magazines call us, uh, who desires nothing to do with uh, parenthood, of of breastfeeding, of of labor. I you know epidurals sound great, but the I just have no desire to be in hospital and having uh, contractions all the time. So yeah. I, you know, as two racialized women, culturally, like, this is something that we get asked often. Like, I mean, not not to say that white women don't, but it's kind of within our cultures for random people, aunties and uncles, to randomly be like, hey, you're like, your eggs are about to, you know, expire because you're in your mid-20s. And we're like, mm, I'm, I'm, I, I was planning on maybe getting married at 35. I don't know. And they're like, oh. You'll be old. You'll be an old witch. And so I thought this would be a great way to just have us talk about what that's like to, you know, to to be in a space where having kids earlier is better. Getting married is pretty much within our um, fate. So, Ramnik, what's what's the ideal age should you want to get married? Well, so to to backtrack, like my mom had my brother when she was 22 years old. Yeah. And so I think about that and I'm at the age of 25 and I can't even possibly fathom that. But I also think that that's part of this conversation that we're about to have today is talking about why millennials are not having kids or having kids later or just choosing to have less kids um, because on the cultural thread there is that right there was that there is that expectation that you're going to get married and have children that's not that's a non-negotiable um, and it is for me at least my parents ask me all the time when I'm planning on getting married I have no mans so I don't understand what 
they're asked like i don't know who they're like when are you getting married and i'm like to who like who am i supposed to get married to i don't understand and then when i say like it's not on my list of priorities or to-do list they're like oh but then when are you gonna have kids and i'm like if i meet somebody i want to have kids with then maybe that's a consideration but that's not something i'm concerned about at all and so of course there is that cultural aspect but there are a number of other reasons why people are choosing not to have children. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So you heard it here first. Carol and I are not getting married anytime soon. But honestly, if we do, it's going to be streamed as a decomplicated podcast coming to you mm. very soon. I would totally do that. Anyways, Carol, let's, let's unpack. Why are millennials not having kids and why is this causing such a moral panic in society? So I will use a recent Bloomberg article to segue into this conversation and it is titled Spare a Thought for the Billions of People Who Will Never Exist as World Population Growth Slows the Never Conceived are the ultimate forgotten ones. I don't know, but this gives me anti-choice vibes. It's very interesting to me that, you know, the kind of conversations around, oh, millennials don't want kids are kind of just people don't want kids. But really the kind of subtext of that is women are no longer having kids within the millennial age group. And it's true. A lot of a lot of women these days are simply not wanting to have kids for a multitude of reasons, which we will get into later. But it's interesting that it's constantly about our bodies and our reproductive organs and whether or not we want to fulfill our potential as women, as moms and and live a white picket fence life and really just feel, be connected with nature and all of that stuff. When it's like, why do you care? Like, you know, it's, it's kind of on the on the opposite side of the spectrum of like abortion laws, which are very extremely blatantly focused on controlling women's bodies. But then this microaggressive stuff where it's like, yay, you have choices, but also why aren't you having kids? And it's like kind of twisted in a, oh, I'm just curious. But really, you're asking me, what's wrong with you? Why don't you want to live the life of your biological sex and, and fulfill that need? You know, the thought of a mini-me in this world really freaks me out. But what are your thoughts, Remnick, on this article, on this kind of trajectory of people really being focused on whether women fulfill their biological um, uh, re reproductive goals, whatever? I think it's it's the the language in this article is fascinating to me because it, it talks about yeah this idea that the the never conceived or the forgotten ones and an exact quote from from this article is quote how real is the loss of a life that never began end quote what does that even mean first of all if if people are choosing not to have children I think that's a personal choice. And again, I think that a lot of society's problems are from people not minding their business and minding other people's personal choices. So let's start there. But this idea that it's a loss of life based on personal choice is rooted in, like you said, a lot of the logic that leads to women's bodies and the choices that women make with their bodies being legislated. And there is this, this deep connection between public policy and, and women's fertility decisions or 
choices to or not to have children, but it isn't just a moral decision. I think that that's where it's it's placing this as a moral failing on the part of those who choose not to have children because they're not, I don't even know what the logic is, creating a legacy or bringing life into this world or whatever, whatever you want to call it. But the fact of the matter is my mother had children at 22, but that was many, many years ago. And the financial situation was different. The cultural situation was different. The societal expectations were different. Uh, So just to get into the numbers here, not only are women delaying having children, uh, we're also having fewer children. And the age, uh, according to Stats Can, the average age of first-time mothers has increased. It used to be 23.2 years in 1959, and in 2019, it is now 29.4 years. And that could also be why they're just having less kids, because you're just having them later in life. Whereas, like, I mean, if you're having it at 22, like my mom, like you're you know, you're just like, all right, might as well just keep having more. Thank God she stopped it too, because I cannot deal with any more siblings. And so so there's that. Uh, but then, yeah, there's the fact that it's, it's expensive. Kids are not cheap and we can barely, I can, again, we are children ourselves, but we can barely afford to live. <laughs> How are we going to afford another human that requires all of these essential things make it make sense. And I mean, to go on that, a lot of us are more focused on careers. We, some of us, grew up in households where we watched our mothers prioritize family life, domes- domesticity over their own dreams and passions. And that's, I'm not saying that's wrong. Maybe you know, for some people, that is their kind of end goal or something that makes them really happy. But for many of us, myself included, we had to watch our moms just lose themselves. And as we've gotten older, we've had to watch them deal with, you know, being alone and realizing that being a mother has now ended and they have to kind of grapple with what their identity is now. And that has, in some ways, traumatized a lot of girls growing up. And, you know, it's hard to watch your mom be like, what is my purpose in life now that my kids are gone? And so in that same thread, like a lot of us are like, you know what, we need to have something that's our own besides just being a mom. Being a mom is a full-time job. It is. So that's a lot. I was just going to say that's such a good, that's such a good point. And I think that's also for, for myself, at least, I feel like that's also part of it. It's like, for the expectation for older generations was marriage. It was children. It was this very linear path throughout life. But I think that, and especially even during the pandemic, like people are talking about this COVID baby boom or that there's going to be so many COVID babies, but stats show that people are actually expected to have less babies during the pandemic. And I think it's because it's kind of distilled what people want their lives to look like versus what their lives are expected to look like. But going back to this idea of cost. So again, expectations are still there. But cost is a primary driver. And so in places like Ontario and British Columbia, there are stats have shown that there are relatively low rates of fertility for women because housing costs are especially high. And, you know, childcare is also not inexpensive. And if you have two children, you're looking at at least $20,000 each year in childcare costs. Now, couple that with the amount of debt that millennials have, and we have more student debt than previous generations. So you're trying to pay off your student debt. You can't afford a house that's even going to fit you. Then you add in a child who apparently needs somewhere to live. 
And then you got to child care them because you have to apparently take care of them. And that costs like $20,000 a year. Now, I'm not good at math, but that's a lot of monies and a lot of monies that I don't have (laughs) and a lot of millennials also don't have. So I think that that is one of the huge, huge drivers of this conversation that I think when you talk about how millennials are boomers primarily talk about how millennials are so selfish for not having children or so, you know, they don't want to contribute to society by birthing a new life. I feel like they forget to take into account the ways that our lives are so much different than uh, previous generations. Yeah. And just to add on to that, millennials in 2018 had a median household of about 71K, which was similar to Gen X young adults in 2001. So our incomes have relatively stayed the same with inflation and all that, and yet living costs have increased. So it's really hard to, A, survive yourself, but yeah, as you said, to keep a whole family afloat is really, really difficult. But that's also not the only thing. Yes, we're broke. We love saying that we're broke because we are broke, but climate change especially in the younger millennial, uh, Gen Z, zillennial age group, climate change is also a factor into why people are not having kids. And there's two kind of two sides to this. So one, people don't want to bring kids into this (laughs) dying planet. I mean, fair. But then there's a second point, which is kind of where we start to enter some, some blurry, not so great, eugenics-y kind of topics, which is the overpopulation myth. People are like, there's too many people in this world, 7 point whatever billion people, supply, demand, all that stuff. We've heard it before. But Romnik, why or what's what's the issue with this neoliberal idea? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, like you said, there's this this concept of the fact that overpopulation is is driving climate change and it's it's something that's talked about by a lot of different people but it often is directed towards countries with black and brown people point blank and this brings me to a speech that prince william did at a gala in 2017 he also said a similar sentiment in 2019 but he said that over, he was warning about overpopulation and said that global wildlife populations had halved since he was born in 1982 and Africa's human population was projected to double within 25 years. So he was warning that we need to slow population growth and he used Africa as an example. People were very quick to point out that this man's was doing this speech while his wife was expecting their third child. And so the hypocrisy is astounding. And I think that's part of the problem with this conversation is culturally, like you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, there are different expectations for different people and their different cultures. And at the end of the day, it's an individual choice. But when we start to say that overpopulation is the reason for this, it overlooks a lot of these deeper inequalities that are causing, you know, these large, larger populations. And at the World Economic Forum in 2020, Jane Goodall also talked about the fact that environmental problems wouldn't exist if our population numbers were at the levels they were 500 years ago. And critics were quick to point out that while her observation may be factually 
correct. Uh, One thing that's also changed is capitalism. In every possible way, commodification has increased, inequality has increased, uh, unequal distribution of resources have increased. And so all of these factors are what are what's contributing to a lot of these climate problems. And when we try to individualize them and place them on the decisions of individual people, we're obscuring these much larger conversations that just aren't being had. Totally. And I know I say this often on this podcast, but this overpopulation, what Prince William said, they're all sentiments of, well, simply white supremacy because white people are so afraid that they will be outnumbered. And so that's really what they're targeting is, hey, non-white people in in not so wealthy countries, please stop having kids because otherwise we're terrified that there will be a revolution and you'll take over. And to Jane Goodall, fine. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a policymaker. I don't know what uh, what you're, I don't have the same degree as you. However, and, and I've seen this argument a lot during the pandemic where people are like, oh, if, if humans weren't on this earth, like the earth would thrive and, and blah, 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 blah. And sure, like, under a very capitalistic society, absolutely. However, to say that is to say that even prior to settlers came to North America, before the Industrial Revolution, before any of this capitalistic bullcrap, indigenous people were living off of this land in a very sustainable way. And then the Europeans came shared their very, what's the word that I'm looking for? Like they were just extracting, extracting, extracting resources. And that's where we ran, we've now come to this issue. We have extracted so much under the system, under the way that the world has now evolved. So it's not really so much of a supply and demand. I mean, in fact, like the global human population, according to the conversation, is not increasing exponentially the way that we think it is. It's quite literally stabilizing now. And and by 20, 20, 2100... Oh my god, 2100. It will be stable at around 11 billion. So we're fine. We just have to change the lifestyles that we're living. We have to restructure our system to make sure that the earth is like, hey, I don't hate you. We can retry this again. Like restart. So I'm tired of this racist bullcrap of white people being like, you guys are the problem. Stop having kids. I don't know. Maybe you guys should stop. Passing it back to you, Ramnik. Another thing that people talk about is, okay, but what's going to happen to Mm. the future generations, to the economy, to the demographics? And people are saying that because there's a declining birth rate, there's going to be an aging population that isn't replaced by a younger workforce, which will cause higher government costs and a smaller workforce to cover those costs, et cetera, et cetera. But I think as a result of that, the opposing side of that argument is that maybe countries can make adjustments and have policies and things that can accommodate this shift. Because if there's less less births, there's more productive workers and a more productive worker could essentially pay for that inflation. And in theory, we could have a better, more prosperous society because there will be less people and less babies, essentially. So long story short, I feel like the under underlying issue isn't people's individual choices to or not to have have babies. Whether Carol and I choose to or don't choose to, the underlying problem are the factors that we lined out in this episode. We need to be able to afford to live. We need to afford to have a clean planet. We need to have a sustainable planet. We need to make sure that people can thrive in their respective ways of life, whether that is in a nuclear family or 
or not. And I think long story short, a lot of the structures and systems that we have in society now are not sustainable for the population that we even have right now, for the people that exist on this planet. So many people are suffering. And I think let's focus on that a little bit more and a little bit less on policing women's individual bodies and choices because that's just a distraction and we ain't got time for it. Ramnik, after after our wonderful conversation, where would you put yourself in like the percentage of millennials who don't want kids? Like what's the biggest factor for you? Is it the part the lack of partner, not to make you feel lonely? Is it the 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 broke it brokenness? Is it the climate change? Like what is where would you put yourself? It is a it is an amalgamation of all of those things. Uh I think the brokenness, the lack of person to co-parent with, the just dislike of children for the most part. Mm-mm, fair. <laughs> the, uh, yeah, the fact that I still live with my parents, I think, is also a little mm. bit of a roadblock into this whole scenario. <laughs> so if I could afford to to live somewhere, that would be cool. Uh, but it's an amalgamation of all of them. So, fair. Yeah. What what about you? Mine is just 100%. I don't want kids. Like, there's no other reason for me. I just don't want kids. The last thing I want is my uterus to be in a lot of pain. You can stick as many needles into me. You can make me go through any type of physical trauma, but the last thing I want is my uterus to be in pain. And I just, I don't want it. So take it, accept it, and I think that's enough. And on that note, Thank you for listening to today's episode of Decomplicated. What the fork? What's laid on me? Let's not even, let's not waste time, okay? What is your first what the fork? So the first WTF is about hashtag CBC, the Canadian broadcaster. We talk about them a lot, but this time they are starting a trend that I think personally should be extended to multiple news organizations. And what CBC has decided to do is turn off Facebook comments on news posts for a month. And the reason behind this is that they found that a lot of their reporters were having to sift through and moderate these comments and spend a lot of time and resources and and mental energy moderating the comment section. And I don't know if any of you have listened or read through the comments on certain news stories, but people are awful. Some people are absolutely awful and will say the most uncalled for, disgusting, racist, horrific things in in the comment section with their whole chest with absolutely no fear of repercussions. And so they said, quote, it takes a mental toll on our staff who must wade into the muck in an effort to keep the conversation healthy for others. It is not sustainable. End quote. And so part of this conversation is the fact that journalists are often subject to hatred and being attacked for the stories they tell or uh, the way that they tell them. And a lot of the times I find at least I'm not maybe not CBC stories, but at least just the stories that we've done or stories that we see on Twitter or other social media sites, especially when the conversations are, are about race and racism, the comments are awful and they prove why we need to be having conversations about race and racism. But the fact of the matter is somebody needs to moderate those conversations. And most of the time, it's just not worth the mental energy of even sifting into these conversations and comments. And at Kai Nagata tweeted, quote, we're not racist. Country where the public broadcaster has to disable comments on every news story about Indigenous people, end quote. And that sums up this entire conversation. This sums up why we need to be having this conversation, but it's like racists will not stop. 
they will not stop until we literally disable the comments because they will derail quite literally any conversation that is about race and racism, quite literally proving why we have a race and racism problem in Canada. Facts. No printer. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Carol, what's your WTF? Mm, This is a true WTF of what the fork. About last week, there was a a report uh, that was surfacing around Twitter and It was an investigation into six faculty members at Queen's University, which found that um, these these six people, uh, they had made false claims about their indigenous identities. And this sparked a whole conversation because as we talked about in, in our Michelle Latimer episode, white people have been doing this for a long time and now finally people are finding out who these people are and trying to hold them accountable for these wrongdoings because that's really yeah it's i mean just a messed up concept to even just falsely be like hey i'm i don't belong to this community but i'm gonna pretend i am some of them back in their lineage uh they do have one they they are related to one indigenous woman from the 1600s, but again, as we talked about in our Michelle Latimer episode with Daryl LaRue, that doesn't make you indigenous. And if you want to read more about why and um, learn more about it, read his book called Distorted Descent or listen to our episode because he gives he gives a really good overview on white claims to indigenous identity. But the funny thing is, is after this report came out and people were questioning and being like, oh, I wonder how Queen's going to respond. And I hope these people are actually held accountable. Queen's uh, put out a statement last week, uh, which was defending. They, They were defending these people. And pretty much the whole thing was like, we reject this document that is not at all related to it's not accredited to us. Um, we're going to investigate who started this, who created it, who shared it. And I quote, the individuals identified in the document are welcome, active, and respected members of the indigenous and academic communities within the university. So they just fully shut down the report, which I read it and it's very detailed and makes great evidence-based statements of why these people are not indigenous and yet we have a university being like these are factual inaccuracies these are misleading and it's just wrong and so i don't know i you wonder why institutions in canada are hated so much and especially when it comes to topics of race that's what the four queens do better what is the last what the fork romnik this is such a sad one because it hits close to home i know i literally didn't want to do this one because i was like i feel like carol and i are personally attacked by hashtag loneliness awareness week so it is currently loneliness awareness week a very important week because especially in the pandemic, during the pandemic, but even after the pandemic, the impacts of isolation are more relevant now than ever. And so people are just having conversations about the importance of talking about loneliness, especially right now when we've been away and separate from people, when we don't know how to reintegrate with people, when we don't want to reintegrate with people. Just the fact that it is something that does take a mental toll on people. And so there is a difference between loneliness and feeling and being alone. But I think that this experience of loneliness is something that as a collective, as as a society, we've all felt in differing ways throughout the pandemic because we've been confronted with having to spend time alone and having to, to experience that and make sense of that. And so the Angus Reid Institute 
did a study that showed that in 2019, 55% of the population identified as having a good social life. Naturally, in 2020, the figure dropped to 33%. But more interestingly, the percentage of those reporting as not suffering from loneliness or social isolation had dropped from 22% to 12%. So people are feeling alone and feeling socially isolated, but I feel like it is something that we just don't discuss. Loneliness comes in waves. And I think that's, you know, it's a very natural part of the human experience. But when it comes to like an extended period of you just constantly feeling lonely, and I will reference my therapist here, she told me that first you sit with the loneliness, you just embrace it, you let it be. And when you then when you find that it's going on for a lot longer than, you know, maybe the your normal waves uh, last for. Use it to identify what's missing in, in your life because your mind and your body is trying to tell you something. And sometimes it's not actually you being with people. Sometimes it's you having to like talk to yourself and maybe it's your mind telling you, hey, like you've been suppressing X emotion that has now led me to feel lonely or you have been neglecting this part of your life. And it's hard, you know, feeling lonely is like really difficult, but it's something that we just have to kind of all learn how to manage. And sometimes it's great because it, it lets you have your alone time, but other times it can lead to a serious problem where you know, it, it can cause more serious mental health issues. Try to embrace the loneliness, but when you find that you are stuck in it for longer, seek help, but also internally reflect on what it is your, your, your mind and your body is trying to tell you because they're not stupid. They're very smart beings, our minds and bodies. And um, I mean, it, you know, we're all isolated right now, but sometimes I think the worst feeling for me is when you're around people and yet you still feel lonely. And that's when you're like, what I'm really needing is not social um, stuff. It's it's something else. And that also brings me back to our episode from season one, where we talked about uh, millennials and mental health. And one thing that Dr. Alani Virgi that we spoke to mentioned was the importance of checking in with yourself and just asking yourself, how am I feeling in this moment? And sometimes, like Carol said, it may not be needing external things. Maybe you just need to check in with yourself and ask yourself, what do I need? Thank you for listening to today's episode and we will see you tomorrow. This episode was produced by Remnik Johal, Carol Eugene Park, that's me, and Brayla Kwan. Decomplicated is a product of Overstory Media Group. See ya.